Good morning. All right, we're with you. I think I heard more people online talking to me than y'all. Um, but that's okay. Welcome to 2021. It is, it is a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Um, I, I have high expectations for 2021. Um, but I, I'll be honest and I'll tell you, I have high expectations for 2020. But when I look at what people are saying about 2020 and the way they define 2020, it's a lot of words you can't use in church that are being used to describe 2020. I think what the problem oftentimes is, is not that 2020 was such a bad year, but I think our perspective was bad. I think the way that we look at things often determines how we respond to things. If our expectation is it for it to be poor or if circumstances that don't feel good or things that we don't like, then it must be terrible. But God is still on his throne. He is still sovereign in every way, and I want to challenge our hearts this morning as we look at Scripture, maybe a story you've heard before, but maybe in a unique way of looking at it. Uh, I, I think that there's some great truth for us to have. I'll be honest enough to tell you right now, there are ten points in this sermon. Yeah, oh man, ten points. But I will do it in less than 30 minutes. Brett gives you two points in 40 minutes. And so... I, uh, I, I will commit that we will go in a, in a fast way, so make sure you buckle up and, and, uh, and hang on. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. 2 Kings chapter 5, page 326 in my Bible. Maybe not yours, if it's on your phone especially, but uh, I would encourage you to read along. I'll be using the NIV version today uh, is where I'll be speaking from on that. I want to look at something that is pretty common in our culture, and it's an idea of greatness. We are constantly looking at greatness. We're defining things as great. What a great play. What a great job. What a great opportunity. What a great person. What a great thing. We have this idea of greatness all the time. And we want to be great and we want to be around greatness and, and we want to do those things. But, but maybe greatness will look a little bit different after today. Because we're going to look at ten great things from this story. And greatness doesn't always mean they turn out positively. And so if you have it, turn to chapter, 2 Kings chapter 5. Let's jump in starting in verse 1. It says, now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, which is also Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. So in this description right here in verse one, point number one is this. We see a great man. It tells us that actually in the scriptures, he was a great man in the sight of his master. The king thought very highly of him. He had had great success in all that he had done. He was a man of significance. He was a man of importance. He was a man of victory. He was a brave man. He was a valiant soldier. Uh, he was the command. He's the five-star general of the army of Syria. We have this great man that we meet in, in verse 1 right here. I, I find it interesting that he had these victories that he got credit for. That, that he in his country was given credit as this great leader, this great commander, this great soldier. And many of his victories came at the expense of God's people in Israel. But why did he have the victory? It tells us right there. Through him the Lord had given victory. Now what that tells me is this, is that God is a God of not one nation, but all nations. 
He is sovereign over all foreign affairs. He is sovereign over all viruses. He is sovereign over all circumstances. He is sovereign over all situations. And even in this, which seems to go against that, why would he allow victory to happen against his people? Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Everything happens for a reason. And when we will have the right perspective, which we get when we look backwards a lot of times, We get to see God's hand move. We get to see why he did what he did. Does he have to reveal all that to us? No, he does not. But he does in this story, which I think is great. Now, here's the thing about this. He, he, Naaman, uh, his name means pleasant, delightful, and beautiful. I mean, he had it all. He had power. He had position. He had looks. He was on the cover of GQ magazine. He was the, you know, top 10 most successful in the world. Like this guy had it all. Everything was good. And so he is a great man. Point number two is this. He had a great need. Because the end of verse one says this. But he had leprosy. Now, leprosy is a skin disease. It's highly contagious and highly painful. Body parts start falling off. It's literally a rotting of your skin. It is not a pleasant thing to have. It's not something that anybody would want to have. It's literally a death sentence. If you got leprosy, you're going to die. There was no cure for this. Matter of fact, you were considered unclean and they would move you out of the city. You were no longer allowed to be part of the culture. You were considered unclean and moved out. And this man had leprosy. His name means pleasant, delightful, and beautiful. But underneath his reputation, he had a big problem. Something ugly was sitting there. And I'm sure he was covering it up. He'd wear long sleeves and turtlenecks and long pants and gloves and maybe even a mask to cover up his situation, to cover up the ugly. He had big position, but he also had a big problem. He oversaw many people and none of them could help him with his situation. He won all the battles since he was a kid, man. He he probably won everything when he was a teenager. He won it all as a commander of the army. He won these battles, but leprosy was going to destroy him. It's a battle he could not win. He had everything except the one thing he wanted most, a cure. Now, here's the thing for us to understand about this, too. We all need a cure as well. Not from leprosy or even COVID, even though that's what we're screaming for. We're all unclean because of sin. And we need a cure. And like Naaman, we try to we try to cover it up. We try to fix it ourselves too often. And like Naaman, we fail miserably when we do. It's a very difficult situation. It's a struggle to be in, to face with that. And we cover these things up. We cover this sin up. We pretend that it's not there. And we'll just fix it ourselves, not realizing that the wages of sin is death. There is a consequence. Sin brings a death sentence with it. Fortunately for Naaman, someone saw his situation and knew the right answer and was willing to give point number three, a great response. A great man with a great need needs a great response. Verse two. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. 
Now, Naaman's wife had been given this little slave girl. This is her job. She had been captured. We don't know her backstory. We don't know her name. We don't know her family. We don't know her tribe. We know that she was taken from the kingdom of Israel when a raid took place. Now, here's the thought that goes into my mind is I'm a weird thinker, but I'll just be honest with you about that. I wonder this. Was Naaman the one that led the charge when she got captured? Was the very man whose house she's in the face of the one that busted down the doors? And we don't know all of the the details of it. Were her parents killed in this attack? Were her brothers and sisters killed in this attack? I don't know. I'm not trying to make it worse than it may have been. But I do know this, that she was taken against her will from her friends, her family, and everything that was familiar to her and forced to live in another country and serve the very people that attacked her people. That's her situation. That's what she was stuck in right there. She probably had no hope of ever returning home again. The same people that brought fear, blood, and death to her people, yet she's serving with joy and faithfulness to Naaman's wife. What an incredible testament to her character. She was a victim but refused to live like one. And she saw his condition. Now, let me be as as transparent as I can with you in this moment as well, as I read this story, studied this story, looked at the situation and tried to put myself in it, the thought that crossed my mind was this. If I was that little girl, what would I be thinking? And my thought was this. If I saw that he had leprosy, I'd be thinking, good, you get what you deserve. Which, after what you did to my family, after what you did to my people, after all the pain and hurt that you've caused, you deserve to have a little pain and hurt in your life. And I hope it hurts as bad as you've hurt me. See, because we have this default in our human nature to say, that's not fair. That's not right. This isn't right. I got stuck somewhere I didn't want to be against my will. And now I have to serve you. Good for you to get leprosy. I hope it eats you all away. Like, see, see how terrible my heart is in that? But I'm all about that vengeance and that justice and what's supposed to be right and fair. And God says, I've got everything under control. I am still sovereign in this situation. See, she, she didn't think that way. She felt compassion for, the, for him, even though they had no compassion on her family. She still chose that. She chose to love her enemies. I think that's somewhere in the Bible we're supposed to do that. See, she saw his condition as not just physical, but also spiritual. The wisdom of this young girl and the, the ability to, to see things as they are was amazing because She'd been raised in a culture that was led by the influence of God's commandments and his covenants and his promises. And she remembered what she had learned and she was going to apply it even in the most difficult situations. She was willing to take that lens of seeing things as God had raised her to do, to to see things through the lens of God and his commandments and his covenants and his promises. And she knew what God could do through his prophet Elisha. She knew there was hope. She knew there was a way. So she spoke up. Please don't ever underestimate the power of your words. They have the power to destroy and they have the power to heal. They have the power to tear down and they have the power to build up. She chose to use her words to build up. She chose to use her words to give hope. She chose to do that. Too often I want to complain about things instead of looking for opportunities to point people to God. Even in the midst of difficult situations. See, this past year gave us plenty of opportunities to complain, and we took them a lot. And I guess those opportunities are still there. 
But have we ever considered that God maybe strategically positioned us where we were at such a time as this to point people to him? That maybe it wasn't an accident. Maybe it wasn't the worst thing in the world for this to happen because that's what God used to get you to this point. So he could use you to point people to him and his greatness. What the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. We've heard that. We did a whole series on that when we went through the book of Joshua and how incredible that was. It's, it's been amazing. I look back to 2020 and, and, and just one quick story that I'll, I'll tell you was, was unbelievable to me. I'm chaplain for Round Rock High School football team across the street and, and I went over to do chapel one day and I got there a little early and I'm watching and I watch a coach walk into the huddle and just kick a kid out of practice. Get out. Kid walks out of practice. I, I didn't know his name. I'm like, oh, great. Okay, I'll do chapel. Yeah, I want to follow that. Uh, and so I do chapel. I share whatever I share. I visit with the coaches. And I start to leave to walk back across the street over here to come back to church. And the kid that got kicked out of practice just happened to be walking to his car across the street. So I caught up to him. I said, hey, man. I didn't know his name. Hey, man. You okay? He's like, I'll be okay. And I said, well, I'm just here if you want to talk. just want to let you know I care. Yeah, okay. Never hear from him again. Ten minutes later, I get a text. Hey, Alan, I got your number from Coach. I'm the kid you asked if I'm okay. I'm not. Can we talk? Sure. In person or on the phone? In person, please. I said, come across the street. So we met over in the front building there and and had a great conversation and began a relationship that was there. Several weeks later, he texted me. Hey, can we get together? Sure. Um, Where do you want to meet? Let's meet at church. Came in. He said, I need to get baptized. Uh, tell what's going on. I need a fresh start. Okay, baptism gets you wet, doesn't get you a fresh start. Let's talk about Jesus and what that does. Da, 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 da. And I got to lead him to Christ. That's God using things. That coach loved him enough to kick him out of practice. And God ordained a moment that I could just say an encouraging word. Hey, you okay? It's all it took for God to set all that in motion. I didn't do any of it. He did. What was a bad situation turned into eternity being changed. Don't ever underestimate the power of your words. And it seems that Naaman was so desperate for help that he was willing to listen to this little slave girl. So verse 4 says this. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing, a Big amount of money here. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, somehow this message got messed up here. This was not how it intended to be. The little slave girl said, Hey, she told her mistress, Hey, I know the the prophet um, in, in Israel can help him and cure him of this. And so she gets word to Naaman. Naaman goes to the king and his boss and all this stuff and says, hey, here's what's happening. And somehow they decided we're going to send him to the king of Israel. The prophet was where he's supposed to go, but we're going to end up to the king of Israel. Why would that happen? That seems different. I I think cockiness does that. Arrogance does that. Like, I'm in control. I'm the king. I'm sending you to the king. The king are the ones who fix this. This leads to point number four. A great disappointment. A great disappointment. Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? 
He doesn't get it. Naaman is coming to the country where God's chosen people live, yet he doesn't even know God himself. The king doesn't know God, and he's king of God's people. It's so disappointing that that must be. How many people go to church and are raised in church their whole life but don't know God? We just know the actions and the boxes we're supposed to check. Proximity does not guarantee relationship. See, we have three men of significance in this story. Two kings and a general. And combined, they have zero answers. But one man does have an answer. Elisha. These men would rather have a title. General. King. This man had... Elisha was called the man of God. I would much rather be called the man of God than the king of Israel. And Elisha gets word about what happened, and he invites him to come to his house. So verse 8 says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, I find it interesting that Naaman, in desperate need of help, has to go to the country where he's just invaded and beaten people all the time. He has to go to the very people that he has hurt to ask for help. And not only does he have to go into that country, he has to go to Samaria, which is like the armpit of the country. He's going to the worst part. This is the bad hood that he's going to hang out in, and this is where he has to go. To How humbling is that for him? This commander of the army that has beaten people in this country, but now I'm going to go and ask for help from those very people. A man of his significance and stature going to such a low and insignificant place on the advice of an insignificant little girl. Because of God. But here he's there. He has high expectations. And here's what he gets, point number five. A great message. He gets a great message right here. Look what happens in verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Let's get the scene here. This royal entourage shows up. Horses and chariots and servants and men and soldiers. And they all show up because the general, the five-star general, is showing up at his house. That's pretty fantastic. So, if it wasn't humbling enough to have to travel to this place, he doesn't even get to meet Elisha. He doesn't even get to see him, right? Why? Elisha treated him as he would anyone with leprosy and needed healing. There was nothing special about this man other than he had a condition that Elisha could help him with. He didn't need Elisha. He needed God. And Elisha sends the servant out there to it. This was so much more than a physical condition. And the servant girl knew it. Elisha knew it. And Naaman had no clue. He just knew that he was doing something he didn't really want to do. But he was desperate enough to try it. Can I just tell you this? The gospel must first humble us before it heals us. The gospel of Jesus will humble us before it heals us. Everything about the gospel of Jesus humbles us. It crushes our pride. We must first humbly admit that we are desperate sinners. 
And that's difficult for someone who has stature. That's difficult for someone who has pride and arrogance. I've got it all together. I don't want to let anyone see my weakness. I don't want to let anyone see my condition. I don't want anyone to let me see my, my failures. And yet, Naaman had no choice because it was literally killing him. This skin disease was killing him. And he had to deal with it. And so we must first humbly admit that we are desperate sinners. Then we must humbly acknowledge that there is absolutely nothing we can do about it on our own. See, that's another step of humility. First, admitting that I'm a sinner. Second, admitting that I can't do anything about it on my own. And then thirdly, humbly accept that Jesus is the only hope we have. Apart from him, we can do nothing. He paid the price for our sins so we could have healing. So we could have hope. We must humbly submit to the greatest authority. See, that's the message of the gospel. It will humble us before it heals us. If our pride is not broken, we'll never fully accept the love of Jesus Christ. If our arrogance is so big, it will not keep, it will keep us from loving Jesus the way we're supposed to and being loved by Jesus the way that we're supposed to. Humility is a difficult thing, but it is required. The gospel will humble us before it heals us. And once we are humbled, the healing comes. The hope comes. Naaman was humbled, but that's not how he saw it. He felt like he was humiliated. This was so beneath him. And so when, because he didn't humble himself, he felt humiliated. Here's what we get, point six, a great rejection. A great message is followed by a great rejection. Verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Like, this fuse was lit by having to go to this other country and having to now go to the, the Elisha's house in Samaria and oh, I don't want to do this. And all the waters here. Are, like everything is just making him matter and matter and matter and his anger is getting worse because he wanted a magic show. He wanted to show up and wave the magic wand and say the magic spell and do all the things and everything's good and I'll just go back to normal. Like that's what he expected. And, and then to go get in these dirty waters when my waters are cleaner anyway, my country's better than your country. Everything about my place is better than your place because that's where I'm the most comfortable. And he was so angry. Every thought made him matter and matter till he stormed off in a rage. My question is this. Why do I get so mad at God when he doesn't meet my expectations? When he doesn't do things the way I want him to do things, why do I get mad? Why do I keep thinking my ways are better? Why do we think God owes us a magic show? Jesus already came, lived a perfect life, died, stayed dead for three days, then rose from the dead for us. What else does he have to do to show us that he loves us and has our best interest at heart? But we want a magic show. We want everything to feel good in our lives. We want every, our expectation is, I become a Christian, I follow Christ, nothing bad happens to me. That's a lie. Following Christ is a collision sport. When you are following Christ and pursuing Him, that means you're going opposite of the enemy. And if you're not bumping into the enemy and having clashes, then maybe you're walking the same way He is. If you're not having difficulties, maybe we're not walking the way we're supposed to with Christ. He's demonstrated his love for us in sending Jesus, and yet we want more. 
Naaman's pride is going to kill him before the leprosy ever will. He needed help, and it came. Even in this desperate situation of rejection, point number seven, came a great reminder. A great reminder. I'm so grateful that God allows us to have reminders. And he got one here in verse 13. Naaman's servants, and let me just wonder out loud with you on this. We know that Naaman's wife's servant girl was captured in a raid in Israel. We don't know specifically, but I wonder if Naaman's servants had also been captured in a raid in Israel. That God had specifically positioned godly young girl to work for Naaman's wife and this group of men that understood God to be his servants. That God strategically surrounded these people with godly folks. Just a thought. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleaned? His servants had enough guts to speak up. Remember, never underestimate the power of your words. When God puts it on your heart, we're supposed to be obedient to it. They tell him, you would do a great thing. Why not do the simple thing? See, because the way that we've been conditioned in our culture is we want the big grand event. We want the mic drop moment, right? We want the heroic act. We want all of those things. We want everything to be big and mighty and awesome and all this stuff. When simply God is asking us to do the simple things, when he said, the greatest command I give you is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why would he give us the opportunity to do something grand and heroic and all, when we're not doing the two things he told us to? How about in 2021, we do the simple of just reading our Bible? Mark challenges us every year with that. Be in the Word every day. Be men and women of prayer more than just meals and bedtime. Scripture says to pray without ceasing. Like, are we having an attitude of prayer just as we go through our life? Are we looking for opportunities to point people to God even in our difficult circumstances? Or are we too busy complaining? Because we don't like it because it doesn't feel good. It threw off my rhythm and threw off my routine and I don't like where I'm at right now. Well, God has you positioned there on purpose and for a purpose. Are we willing to respond in obedience to the simple things? Praying more than just at meals. Giving an encouraging word. Maybe checking in on people. We need each other. I, I went to two funerals this week. Early in the week, I went to a 98-year-old saint's funeral. She was the Mima of Cedar Park. If you've ever been to a football game out at Leander High School, A.C. Bible Stadium, it was Mrs. A.C. Bible. Her great-grandson was in our youth group. And I got to hear about the legacy left by an incredible saint. And then yesterday, I went to the funeral of a 26-year-old autistic Eagle Scout that taught my son how to tie knots that helped him get his knot-tying merit badge or whatever it's called in Scouts. None of those, neither one of those made national news. I didn't see it on the bottom line ticker coming through. But both of those people made impact. We need each other. We need to be checking on each other. We need to be loving each other. God uses the insignificant things to make significant impact. See, the heroes of this story are not the ones with significance. They're the servants. They're the ones with the guts to obey, the guts to speak up. They're the ones to do that. I, I don't know how many of you watching online, even right now, or in this room, have been forced into quarantine because you either got, got COVID or you were exposed to COVID, so you had to do all that kind of stuff. 
and I'm not trying to say this to, to insult anybody, but challenge us in this, when we are forced into quarantine, does it change our attitude to one of complaining and we just default to watching Netflix, social media, and laziness? Or do we see it as an opportunity to dive deep into God's Word? To become men and women of prayer? Because you can't go anywhere else and do anything else so you can spend time checking on people and praying for people and loving people. Are we taking advantage of it or are we blaming God because this dumb virus now just ruined my life? Or maybe he positioned you to bless someone else and point them to Jesus. Just a thought. But apparently, this is enough a reality check that he decided to give it a shot. Naaman's servants called him out and said, you would do the great thing, do the simple thing. Let's do the simple thing in 2021. And when he does, we get point number eight, we get to see a great exchange. A great exchange happens. Watch this. Verse 14. So he went down. See? Change his mind here. He went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. This old man's skin that was all rotting and falling apart became fresh and clean like a bald head. I get an amen from my bald brother over there. Come on. Like that's, you could say like a young boy, but I say like a bald head. Like I would love to know what was going on in his mind when this was happening, right? Like I want to go to heaven and say, God, can you DVR this scene? Like when he chooses to go get into the river, did a crowd kind of gather around? Were there, were there a bunch of people going, wait, I know that guy. He's the one that invaded our country. Like what is he doing? In the, what's happening? Like what was that? Did, did people recognize him? How long did it take? Like, is this just jump up and down seven times in the water? Or you dive in and get out and dive back? Like, I don't know what this dipping in the Jordan looked like. I don't know how long it took. I don't know all of those things that, that happened right there. I wonder, as he was doing this, as he's getting to the fifth time and the sixth time and nothing's happening, he's thinking, man, shouldn't some of it already go away? Shouldn't it already happen? I wonder, as a military man, as a man who studied wars and understood strategy because he won all these victories, I wonder if he had ever heard the story, and I wonder if it ever crossed his mind as he's getting in the Jordan about what Joshua did, and this his people, and they had to march around a city seven times, and the walls fell. And now he's dipping in the Jordan seven times, and the disease falls. I wonder if he put that together. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But I wonder. But I do know is this, is on the seventh dip, there was a great exchange that took place. His skin became smooth. His, he was healed instantly and completely. And that miracle had nothing to do with the water and everything to do with the power of God. The water wasn't magic. The obedience made the difference. The submission made the difference. The humility made the difference. And that's just the physical part of it. Move to verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. It wasn't just his skin that changed. It was his mind and his soul. It was changed forever. Naaman was a new creation. He exchanged his old arrogant heart for a new submitted heart to God. Death to life, physically and spiritually. Have you made the great exchange yourself? Have you stepped into obedience with Jesus Christ? Have you accepted his offer of a new life and a new eternity? Have you accepted that? Or are you still too busy hiding the things that you don't like? 
Too busy living in shame and regret and, and, and your past that does not define you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of, of new creation. God is doing a new thing. And just because the calendar changes doesn't mean everything in our circumstance will change. But because of what Jesus did on the cross means our eternity can change. Do you know him? Point number nine. This is a great story. It's a great story. Naaman was the beneficiary of people who loved him more than they hated their circumstances. See, those servants that were trapped, oh, that little girl that got taken, those other guys that were with him when he went over to Elisha's house, like they were there against their will. They're servants. They didn't get a choice in that. But they chose to love Naaman more than hate their circumstances. And as a result, Naaman's life was changed. Who is it that you need to love more than your circumstances so you can point them to Jesus? Who's going to benefit from your story? And whose story have you benefited from? Maybe it's time to tell them thank you. Maybe it's time to tell them that story. Maybe it's time to use it to point people to God because it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, that you also are a part of an amazing story. It says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Every one of us. Created on purpose and for a purpose and in the image of Christ. You cannot let hidden sin or pride keep you from being everything God created you to be. You are not defined by what you've done. You're not defined by what's been done to you. You are defined by what's been done for you. And what was done for you is Jesus willingly paying the price of death for our sin. For every sin. Praise God for that. Which brings us to the last point. We have a great God. We have a great God. Verse 16 of Ephesians 3 goes on to say, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It's so big for you. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. He doesn't want you running on fumes. He doesn't want you running on empty. He doesn't want you running on half a tank. He wants to fill you every day with his love that empowers you to go and live like he called you to do. To go make a difference in people's lives. To go let your story be told for his glory so that eternity can be changed. Your circumstances do not define God. He has positioned you specifically to make impact for eternity. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Can I tell you the best is yet to come? We start this new year with high expectations. You're going to get disappointed this year. You're going to have a frustration this year. But the best is yet to come, not because of here, but because of who. This is not our home. Don't get too comfortable. Get positioned to make an impact for eternity. Are you in position to do that? Are you ready to do that? 
Are you trusting God to do that? I can't wait, if you're willing to do it, to share with us the stories of how God used your unemployment and the new job you're going to start tomorrow to be glory for him. I can't wait to hear those stories of someone got sick and there was healing and God prayed. Boom, things happened. I can't wait to hear how even a loss turned into life. Because as, as this Bible went into the ground as a seed, it's going to produce life for generations. Let us live with intentionality. Let us live the gospel with intention. Let us be humbled by the gospel so we can be healed. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your amazing, amazing love for us. God, I thank you for this story of a guy named Naaman who is just weird and arrogant and cocky. And God, you humbled him to the point of brokenness, to the point of salvation. And God, the rest of the story is amazing in that chapter. We don't even have time to go through it all to see how he took you back to his land. And God, I believe that that little servant girl, I believe that Naaman, I believe that his servants started their own little house church. God, I pray that you would help us to know that we don't have to have position to make a difference. We don't have to feel significant in the world's eyes to know the significance we have because we're the apple of your eye. God, let us love big and be loved big for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.